Hey, good morning. As Dave said, I'm Josh, one of the pastors here. And so we are continuing a series about God's presence. We're trying to ask and answer the question, what does it mean to live into God's presence? How do we become a people of the presence? And so uh, one of the first things that we often run into as we're, whether you made it last week and listened or, or this is kind of brand new to you, whether you grew up in a a church tradition that valued the presence, or maybe you just didn't really talk about it. Maybe that was too woo-woo, and it was one of those church things that they did over there, but you were more people of the Word and of the Bible. And, you know, so anyway, I'm just thinking, we, we don't have to choose. It's like, you know, your, your kidneys or your heart, which would you rather have? Like, I want it all. I want to be a person of the Word, and I want to be a person of the presence. And yet, like I said, one of the first things that we often run into when we're seeking to turn our attention and our affections to God and his presence is our attention. There's a battle for our attention. We actually exist in this cultural moment. There's something called the attention economy, that uh, our attention has become this commodity, this scarce commodity that, that many people are vying to attract you and your attention. We see thousands of ads every day Uh, Thousands of pieces of information gamed to draw us in and give us a vision of what life would be like with a product that they're trying to sell. We exist in this attention economy. And this has been written about a lot. I know I have actually talked about this quite a bit. I'm kind of a freak when it comes to talking about our attention and how digital uh, media is trying to suck us in. And so I'm going to quote again from one of my, I just, one of my contemporary, favorite contemporary authors is Cal Newport, who is a professor at MIT, and he's written a book called Deep Work, which is about our attention and our focus and how it's shrinking. We have, I mean, you've probably heard the anecdote that the average uh, adult in America has a shorter attention span than a goldfish. It's actually, it's not just a myth, it's actually true. We've got about an eight-second uh, eight attention span down, I think, 12 seconds from a couple decades ago. So he writes about this. He says this, the ability to perform what he calls deep work is this deep, concentrated work where we're productive and in the flow of what we're trying to create or produce or do. The ability to perform deep work is becoming increasingly rare at exactly the same time it is becoming increasingly valuable in our economy. As a consequence, the few who cultivate this skill and then make it the core of their working life will thrive. Once your brain has become accustomed to on-demand distraction, meaning the computer that you have in your pocket, basically, that you carry around. Once your brain has become accustomed to on-demand distraction, it's hard to shake the addiction, even when you want to concentrate. To put this more concretely, if every moment of potential boredom in your life, say having to wait five minutes in line or sit alone in a restaurant until a friend arrives, or have any kind of private devotional time connected to Jesus, right? Because there is a lot of boredom that comes along with that. Am I doing it right? Are you there, Lord? Am I praying the right prayers? Hello, what's going on? Oh, on to the next thing because my kid wants to go to soccer practice, right? Okay, all of that stuff is relieved with a quick glance at your smartphone, then your brain has likely been rewired to a point where it's not ready for deep work, even if you regularly schedule time to practice this concentration. So the thing is, though, this is is really interesting because it's not just about shrinking attention. It's what we have been giving 
the few seconds of attention to. It's the, the dual uh, uh, problem of our shrinking attention and that quick glance at the smartphone, usually towards some sort of social media engagement. Now, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not someone who has given up on all of that. I'm, I'm on a few platforms. Um, I do have some regular rhythms that I'll get into some other time. So I want to just, I, I want to be real. I want to be uh, uh, just practical about we live in a digital age, and yet we're pretty new at knowing how to handle this and have any kind of spiritual life with Jesus, right? We're brand new. So there's no condemnation. There's no guilt. I'm as much a, 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 at fault as anyone here. And so we have a, t- a shrinking attention span and what we give our attention to when we look at Facebook, when we scroll Instagram, or when we get on a, in a fight on Twitter is, is stealing our attention and our ability to focus on Jesus. So Jonathan Haidt wrote an article in The Atlantic, a long form. I mean, it takes about half an hour to actually make it through this, this uh, piece of journalism, but it's absolutely fascinating, and I would recommend it to everyone. You might have to take it in small chunks, and that's perfectly fine. So if you remember Jonathan Haidt, a couple weeks ago, I, remember, uh, I referenced him as the, the writer and the elephant guy, the metaphor of like where we turn our attention and what we, how, how we want to change. So he is this social psychologist, this professor at NYU that has given himself to studying this cultural moment that we're in in the digital information age. And he wrote an article called Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. Basically, he's looking at 10 years ago and where we are now, and we're not any smarter as, as, as a society. And it's mostly due to how we engage with each other on social media. He, he writes this, by 2013, social media had become a new game with dy- dynamics unlike those in 2008. If you were skillful or lucky, you might create a post that would go viral and make you internet famous for a few days. If you blundered, you could find yourself buried in hateful comments. Your post's road to fame or ignominy, based on the clicks of thousands of strangers, who, I don't even know if I pronounced that right, but we're gonna move on, pretend I did. Thousands of strangers, and you in turn contributed thousands of clicks to the game. This new game encouraged dishonesty and mob dynamics. Users were guided not just by their true preferences, but by their past experiences of reward and punishment, and their prediction of how others would react to each new action. One of the engineers at Twitter who had been work, who had worked on the retweet button later revealed, remember, there used to not be a share or a like button or a retweet button on any of these platforms. And so one of the engineers that worked on this said this, he, he later regretted his contribution because it had made Twitter a nastier place. As he watched Twitter mobs forming through the use of the new tool, he thought to himself, we might have just handed a four-year-old a loaded weapon. The newly tweaked platforms were almost perfectly designed to bring out our most moralistic and least reflective selves. The volume of outrage was shocking. By giving everyone a dart gun, and this isn't, he, he's using a metaphor, it's like, the Twitter mob won't kill you physically, but it's kind of like being shot a thousand times with dart guns. Not Nerf guns, like, like po- pointy, pokey, you know, prick you in the skin sort of dart guns. It's, a, it's death by a thousand paper cuts, right? So it's like being shot by a dart gun. Social media deputizes everyone to administer justice with no due process. 
Platforms like Twitter devolve into the Wild West with no accountability for vigilantes. A successful attack attracts a barrage of likes and follow-on strikes. Enhanced virility platforms thereby facilitate massive collective punishment for smaller imagined offenses with real-world consequences, including innocent people losing their jobs and being shamed into suicide. When our public square is governed by mob dynamics, unrestrained by due process, we don't get justice and inclusion. We get a society that ignores context, proportionality, mercy, and truth. We know Twitter's not real life, but man, it sure affects real life a lot, especially if you're a teenager right now, especially if you're Gen Z. Your, your social life can be made or destroyed in a moment. And why, why Jonathan Haidt talks about th- how this has made us uh, uniquely more stupid is because the extremes are the loudest and the moderating voices in the middle that are sane and rational are often quiet because those from their own camps often turn on their own when you have a pushback to any kind of extreme idea. And so we in the middle, I'm I'm assuming most of us are not trolls and we're kind of in that moderating middle, whether you lean right or left uh, politically, we sort of take a step back and go, why would I ever wanna get involved there? And we hand it over more to extreme voices. So what does this do to us as a society with our shrinking attention spans, but yet giving it to to like and to retweet or to share these posts that make us more like fearful and, and hated towards one another? What's that like? What does that do to our soul? Just everyday people like us. Well, it certainly... Can, it, it can certainly crowd out the voice of God. When, we're, uh, when the whole thing is set up to stoke hatred and fear and animosity, what I find is that there's very little room for the voice of God to actually be in my life. When I'm worried about the latest Twitter outrage, or I'm in a fight, or I'm, you know, there's someone posting, and every three seconds I've got to make a post and a counterpoint, I'm caught up in the drama of that. And unless I can ascend, uh, uh, transcend that and lean into something different, I just get caught up in what everybody else is doing around me. But church history teaches us many things, one of which is that you know, before the days of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, we don't actually have to live like this. There's actually a different way. Maybe a more simple yes, but definitely a, a better way when we learn from those saints who have gone before us in the past how they've connected with God, how they've resisted their own cultural moment that pulls them away from God's presence. One of the people that that I really love to learn from the most, uh, uh, there's a book, it's like 100 pages, called The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. He lived in the 17th century in this Parisian monastery, but he wasn't even a monk, he was kind of like a brother that did the dishes all the time. And what he found was, those were moments. Yes, he participated in uh, the, the prayers and, and, and the worship that went on, but the, it's the moments where they stuck him in the back kitchen scrubbing pots, where he actually found that he could connect with Jesus the most. There, was, there wasn't any distraction from other people coming in and going out, and the whole thing, the whole monastery was meant that you could have your own private cell and connect with God, yet it was in that place of serving and going low and being humble that he connected with God the most. He said this in his book, and you can find this book for like a dollar on Amazon or probably in a bookstore. It's a really fantastic little book. I read it maybe every couple years. 
to remind myself, because he didn't even mean for this to be published. It was a, a, it was a collection of letters that he wrote to other people encouraging them, and they collected them because they were so, they, they, they ushered people into the presence of God so much. They said, we've, we've got to figure out how to sell this thing. No, not really, but we've got to figure out how to, how to make it accessible. So he says this, the difficulties of life do not have to be unbearable. It is the way we look at them through faith or unbelief that makes them seem so. We must be convinced that our Father is full of love for us and that he only permits trials to come our way for our own good. Let us occupy ourselves entirely in knowing God. The more we know him, the more we will desire to know him. As love increases with knowledge, the more we know God, the more we will truly love him. We will learn to love him equally in times of distress or in times of great joy. He does not ask much of us. Merely a thought of him from time to time, a little act of adoration, sometimes to ask for his grace, sometimes to offer him your sufferings, and other times to thank him for the graces, past and present, he has bestowed on you. In the midst of your troubles, to take solace in him as often as you can. Lift up your heart to him during your meals and in company. The least little remembrance will always be the most pleasing to him. One need not cry out very loudly, he is nearer to us than we think. What if that could be true? What if that actually was the case? In those moments where we feel distracted and bored and there's a pull towards social media or to see what someone's posted or see what it, whatever influencer is wearing right now. What if in those moments of boredom, those could be actually the moments where we realize God is actually more near than I ever thought possible? What would that do for us? Instead of falling prey to the algorithm that's meant to stoke fear and hatred, we were actually able to turn our attention and our affection without any kind of gusto, without any kind of like big, you know, action or act or whatever, but just gently turn our affection to him. What kind of people could we be if we did that, if we found that we could do that regularly? Now, I think this is possible and the good news is, I think there are people that have been doing this for a very long time that could teach us how to do this, that God is actually more near than we ever thought possible. And there's a story in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis 28, about a man named Jacob, who's kind of a bad dude at the time that we meet him. He's, he's a trickster, he's a deceiver, he's, uh, his father is meant to give the blessing to his older brother, but he swindles his brother out of the blessing and we find him in, in chapter 28 on the run from his brother Esau, running away because Esau wants to kill him because he stole from him. And it says this in verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. Now, I like camping. This is a bad deal. Like, he's, he does not have his gear. He takes a stone, he puts it under his head so he can get some sleep. He had a dream there in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, which is top reaching down to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. If you've ever listened to any Led Zeppelin, this is exactly what they're talking about. <laughs> there above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you were lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you... Well, you will spread out to the west and to the east and the north and the south. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. 
I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, house of God. I think this is one of the kindest statements in all of the scripture that God could put for us. Maybe God is here and I just didn't realize it. Can anybody relate to that? Maybe, just maybe, God showed up when I asked him to. I was just looking in the wrong direction at the time. Maybe God really is as good as he says he is, and maybe I'm more dull in my heart than I really think I am. But I don't have to have it all figured out. I don't have to have enough money in the bank. I don't have to have all my family of origin issues sorted out. I don't have to have all that on lock before God will move on my behalf. That's so encouraging to me. That's so encouraging to me in the messiness of life, in the, oh no, I looked at Twitter for the 12th time this hour. What am I gonna do with myself? And surely God is in this place with me, going, yeah, I, I, I warned you, but hey, let's go. I think this is the kindest thing, that maybe God is really in this place and my doubts haven't scared him away. For Jacob to make this statement in the midst of his mess, caught in his lies, running for his life, fearing what's gonna happen because of a broken family that he's responsible for, I think this is good news for us. It's at least good news for me. In fact, there's a story in the New Testament where Jesus shows up and people who are skeptical of him really have an encounter of his kindness and his goodness. Actually, that's like every story of Jesus where people are skeptical of him and he says something or does something and there's people that go, oh, okay, I see God in a totally different light now, right? But there's one particular story that's a callback, that the Genesis story is a callback to. We find this in John chapter one, the, the first uh, uh, chapter of the, the book of, or the gospel of John. When Jesus is just beginning his ministry, it says this in verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, Nathanael's the one that goes, that Philip's trying to get him to come see Jesus. And he says, I found the guy in, in Nazareth. And Nathanael's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, don't you feel that sometimes? Can anything good come out of Manhattan? Can anything good come out of my hometown? What is going on here? So Nathanael, uh, Jesus sees Nathanael approaching. He said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were sitting still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. Now, we don't know what Nathanael was talking to God about under that fig. We don't know any. That, it's going to be kind of interesting when we get to, to be with the rest of the saints in glory. And we go, hey, Nathanael, what were you and God talking about under the fig tree? Jesus only said, hey, I saw that. And you go, whoa, you are the son of God. Like, surely you are God himself, right? We don't know. We're kind of in the dark here. 
Jesus said, you think, you say that and that's all I need to tell you. Surely, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, in first century uh, Israel, in, in the ancient Near East where rabbis are teaching, uh, a, a rabbinical tactic is to quote a piece of scripture, just a part of it. So you'll see this in quotations that Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, from the, the uh, Genesis 28 and Jacob. And those listening, those students that are listening would know that he's referencing not just a, a, a quote taken out of context, but, but that, that would trigger in them an understanding that, that this rabbi is trying to teach me about this entire narrative, the, the verses before and the verses after of, of, the, uh, of what he quoted to me. And so Jesus is telling them, basically, you believe me because I told you something? Surely, you'll see heaven open all the way above me. If you draw near to me, there'll be a different kind of encounter that happens because you're connected to me. In fact, in both of these narratives, in the Old Testament narrative, Genesis 28, and in John 1, there, th these stories contain three things. There's a revelation of the supernatural dimension. There's something that gets opened up that they were unaware of. Surely God was here, and I did not know. I was not aware of this. Secondly, there's astonishment. This revelation of God's presence brings astonishment and awe. It brings worship. It evokes worship from the hearers. And then thirdly, there's a promise of blessing from God. Surely you'll see heaven open, angels ascending and descending. If you draw near to me, you'll experience heaven in a new way due to this connection. There's a commentator, uh, Frederick Dale Bruner, this is a little thick, but I think it's really good for us. And his commentary on the Gospel of John says this, Nathaniel's historical truth is trans-historical truth for all Jesus' disciples who are standing here now with Nathaniel and for all in the church who are sitting here now with them, reading this text with comparable expectation and faith. The opened heaven is in the Greek perfect tense, opened, conveying completion, Stressing the last two letters in the English word, opened. So the NIV, in other words, what he's saying, the NIV translated, you'll see an open heaven. The Greek actually is, it's an opened heaven, meaning Jesus has come once and for all, opened heaven for all of his followers, all of his apprentices, okay? This open heaven is the first reality promised the church here in Jesus' most personal remark. Among Jesus' major contributions to history and certainly to faith is the gift of an opened and so somewhat demystified heaven, an opened heaven. Ever since Jesus, God is no longer only inscrutable mystery, though God always remains deep mystery. God has at last been in flesh and wonderfully exegeted, meaning interpreted, explained, and revealed in the human life death and resurrection of Jesus, who is God's autobiographical and substitutionary word and son. In this gracious sense, ever since Jesus, believers honestly believe themselves under the opened heaven. One senses throughout the gospel that over this man, the son of man, there is in fact an opened heaven and that all who join company with him experience something of the supernatural open, opening themselves. So counter to what feels like it's closed to us before Jesus, before walking and knowing Jesus, thinking that God is distant, God is detached, God doesn't care, that Jesus has come once and for all and opened heaven to all who would come to him.
So we don't have to wonder, even if we may not feel it in our physical sensations, even if we may not feel anything tangible, we may not get the woo-woos or the, the, the hairs that stand up on edge, we can take comfort in the fact that Jesus has busted open heaven and poured it out over every one of us who follow him. That God is now near to us. We know that he's for us. We know that he's good. And Emmanuel means that God is with us once and for all. Okay? So this is available to everyone. Again, if it's available to Jacob in the Old Testament, through that old promise, that old covenant, now has been made available once and for all through faith in Jesus. And it's available to everyone no matter your background, where you grow up, grew up, how much money you have, your family of origin issues, all it requires is humility and hunger to turn to him and ask for more. To say thank you, more please. I, I think of God's presence and living in an open heaven is sort of like having cake. Thank you for that piece of cake. Please give me more cake. Thank you for your presence, God. Please release more presence over your people. Is that sacrilege to compare it to cake? Is that, I don't know, I, were those groans or I don't know what that was. <laughs> well, but how do we do this practically in our everyday life, right? Amongst all the busyness, all the distraction, all the digital things calling to us, how do we do this? So I, I just want to help us grab a hold of two postures for entering in and experiencing God's presence in our everyday life. First, there's a corporate posture. So every week we call our spiritual family together for worship. We gather here, and it is a grace to be with you all. It's grace. Remember in the pandemic when this was really taken away from us, and it was kind of an exciting adventure for a while, but after a while it's like, yeah, I could connect with God anywhere and everywhere, but I miss my family. Like, I was in lockdown, with, and we got along great with my, with my, you know, physical family, my bio family. But there's a spiritual component, there's a grace to being together. And sometimes you don't know what you're missing until it goes missing. But I think we do need to remember what it's like to be away from each other so that we can appreciate the nearness. And so as we call worship together every week, um, we have to be aware of the messaging that we bring with us. So I'm gonna get really practical, maybe step on a few toes, especially my own. Okay, is that okay? We're friends, we're family? Okay, we're gonna go there. We have to be aware of the messaging that we bring in from a consumer culture that tells you, because of advertising and trying to get your attention, that life is for you and it should always be about you. And that, doesn't switch off when we walk through the threshold of a physical church building or watch online. That that is embedded in our psyche. There's something that calls to us because we've just grown up with this like fish in water. Our American culture tells us life is about you, live it up, and if you don't like it, complain loudly or move on to the next thing. We have to be aware that that's more American-centered than Jesus-centered. That worship is not for us and it's not about us. Yes, there is something we get. There is a splash over. There is an encounter we want to have with each other, being together and in God's presence. But the songs that we pick, 
the volume that they're sung at, the timing of it all. Guys, I'll be honest, I love what we do here. Not every song we sing is my favorite song. But it's not, worship's not for me. You don't, you don't sing to me, do you? I'm not singing to myself. I love our worship. Y'all do a fantastic job. All y'all, I appreciate it a lot. But worship is not about singing to anybody except Jesus. And when we do that, when we connect with him, he shares more of himself. That's what I want. I don't want to like the songs more. I want God, more of God's presence. You, you can sing Kumbaya for all I care, worship team, as long as you take me to heaven. That's what I want. I want him here now, close to us. I'm glad we don't just sing Kumbaya. You get what I'm saying, okay? So here's the thing. Hungry people don't turn up their noses at the food that's set before them. And hungry worshipers don't turn up their noses at the worship gathering that they're invited to. Hungry people know how to eat. Hungry worshipers know how to enter in. Okay, you could say amen to that. And if you can't say amen, you can say ouch, and that's okay too. Okay, all right. So a couple things then on when we gather for this corporate posture of worship. First, take advantage of our time together. Maybe think about how you can prepare yourself for when you step in. Now, we talked about how God's presence is everywhere in the world all at once, but there's a tangible manifest presence that we're stepping into and we're asking for God to do more and send more of his presence, right? So we covered that last week. But So as we step into corporate worship and have this posture, maybe think about the ways that you can enter in before you even get here. Maybe all you need to do is wake up 15 more minutes early and have some silence and solitude to yourself to prepare your heart. Maybe don't get here and just rush around and try and like, you know, honestly not on time, but five minutes late. Maybe show up on time or a little bit early to connect with each other. It's more meaning when, when we're together, God will do more if we ask together. It's a principle of the kingdom that God will give more to those who ask him. And when his his children are together saying, God, we want breakthrough. God, we want to experience and encounter you. When more of us are asking for that and contending for that kind of breakthrough, oh, that's a, that's a well-pleasing aroma to God. If you, I, I touched base just briefly with Emma uh, during our mingle time. That, the last song, that I have a, a life to give to you, I have a heart to give to you. I don't, I don't know if y'all noticed this. You can pay attention to some of these things when we're gathering for worship, but God's presence really showed up in a, in a unique and unusual way in that last song. Whereas, like, my kids were kind of fidgety and there were babies crying, and I love, honestly, I love babies crying and kids being fidgety in worship. I, I'd rather have crying kids and fidgety kids than complete silence because that's more of a, a, a a cemetery feeling than a worship experience, so bring on the kids. But I did notice that as God's presence increased, the kids became less fidgety, and there seemed to be more focus towards God. That's more of his presence. And children are often more attuned than adults are, right? Like if it's, I was just thinking about how to describe this, but it's like, you know how I'm encouraging us to turn our heart's affection to God, one of the ways that we can try and do that is help our kids turn their affection because kids are like your hearts walking around outside of you, right? And so when they're fidgety, don't you feel fidgety as parents? 
Because some of you are asking me, how am I supposed to engage God's presence when my kids are pulling at my arm every five seconds? Like, I get it. In these moments, we can contend for more because in those moments where God shows up, it's easier to enter in if we're having those moments of helping our kids encounter God's presence. We, we do it practically. Hey, John, you do a great job of like being there and focusing on the words and singing along and being reflective. And so this is something where we've taught him over years of this is what God's presence feels like. It's peace, it's calming, it's joy. It's, it's kind of easy to focus your concentration on God. And so we, several times, we'll, we'll say, okay, let's focus up here. Okay, let's, let's sing along. Hey, let's not talk when Emma's praying because we wanna be focused on Jesus right now. So it does, just like it takes training our kids to focus in worship, it's the same kind of little nudges and, and gentle recenterings that it takes our hearts when we're even together to do this. So that, I know that's super practical and tangible, but I hope that really helps. Like some of us are like abstract, like, oh yeah, I focus on God's presence. You just tell me, you give me permission, I'm there. Some of us are like, but what do I do? What do I do with my hands? Like, do I put them in my pocket? Like, do whatever. I would encourage you, do something that feels a little uncomfortable as a sacrifice to God. So some of us may need to take our hands out of our pockets and just put them here like we're, we're receiving a gift. God may be nudging you to like actually put your hand up as, as, a, as a sign of like, I, God, I'm reaching for you. My heart is reaching to you. The, the value isn't in this show of posture. It's being surrendered so that you're expressing. Some of us may need to sit. You may need to close your eyes and just like, feel like it's just you and God in that moment. You, you may need to let your emotions out a little bit more. So one of the reasons, just another practical tidbit, one of the reasons it's a bit darker in this room, especially during worship, is so that we can be together, but you can also feel like you can have a moment. You have permission to encounter God, and you have the freedom to do so without feeling like anybody is watching you. No one's watching you in worship because no one can see you. You're welcome. So use that time so that your heart can reach out to God and say, more, Lord, I, I want you more, okay? So, secondly, and, and I'll just say this, you don't need my permission to encounter God's presence here, but you have my permission, if you know what I mean. Like, you never need it, but you absolutely have it to experience, to, to express freedom and, and, and encounter, okay? So secondly, our private posture works in tandem with this corporate posture, we need both. It's not an either or. Now, you may connect more with God in a worship service, or you may not. You may connect with God more privately and devotionally, and that's okay. But we need to do both. We need to press in to both to, to encounter God. And so the way that, that God has arranged life in the kingdom is that we need these corporate moments of breakthrough, of encounter, of, of praying with and, and for each other. And then we need to take those moments and go more privately where we sit in front of God in the quiet, in the solitude, in sometimes the silence to hear his voice and to really sense and discern, here's what his presence feels like to me. Without all the, the loudness and without all the activity, here's God in the stillness and the quiet so that I connect with him as well too. I, I love taking my wife out on dates, but if all of our connection time was out in public, well, let's just say we wouldn't have a big family, okay? Um, but you, so you need both 
of those things. If we only hung out at the house, she would go crazy. I could do that. She would be like, you are boring. You are the most boring person. I need adventure in my life. Let's go do something. Okay. Anyway, sorry, John. We're going to move on. Okay. The way, the way I lost my place. Um, so one of the ways that we can cultivate an awareness of God's presence uh, in the private posture is what is called a thin place. This is newer language for me. Some of you may be familiar with it. Certainly you're familiar with the concept. The idea is we live in a busy, distracted world, and, and those are the thick places that surround us. It's, it's just, it's hard to encounter God. It's hard to turn your attention to God. It takes work. It takes effort to do so. But there are places that God has arranged for us to encounter him, and these are thin places. Jacob stumbled onto a thin place when heaven opened, and he called it Bethel. Thin places are those, are those places that we go, and it seems easier to connect with God. It may be a worship service. It may be, um, I told you last week about Yellowstone, Yellowstone Falls. That was a thin place of like, whoa, God is here, this is amazing, I'm small and yet loved, and there was a place of encounter for me. But it also may be a living room spot or a chair or a place, a chapel maybe that you go to and that you're able to just sit and be with God. Tracy Bowser in her book called Thin Places says, a truly thin place is any environment that invites transformation in us, helping us as believers in Jesus to think and see and understand as he does. Any place that creates a space and an atmosphere that inspires us to be honest before God and to listen to the deep murmurings of his spirit within us is thin. Such connections with God are most often very simple indeed. His presence is rarely accompanied by cosmic fireworks. Not many of us have burning bush encounters. Rather, we find that God's presence is most often more like the comfort we know when we are in the presence of a dear friend. Between ourselves and that friend, there are no obstacles, only enough space for love to flow freely back and forth between us, either through words or through silence. It is true that the realities and responsibilities of life can make us feel tethered to the here and now, helpless in the effort to really get away from it all in search of thin places. Yet Jesus reminds us that the whole project is really very simple. A closet is all that's needed. We can look for such places in our homes, a corner, comfortable chair, a room set aside to be sanctified as a thin place. Whenever you discover this place, it's as if your heart turns there almost instinctively. It, it thinks, I need to get back to that place. When you've been out of it for, for long periods of time, you think to yourself, and it's usually the nudging of the Spirit, the invitation of the Spirit, hey, join me here. Remember when? And so we, we can have places maybe in creation. Creation speaks of God's glory. So it's natural if like you think of a top of a mountain or maybe a beach or a cave or whatever it is that you go. Maybe it's a retreat house or some place where you can be with God and, and you schedule trips there. You just can't wait till the next time that you can plan your vacation around visiting that spot. Though That's great and I encourage that. I think there's something about retreat and pilgrimage that's really powerful that uh, the church in the West doesn't really participate in very much. But Jesus, thankfully, has made it very accessible to us, that all it takes is a place, a closet, a chair. So I have, I have, I have the grand, I, I like tops of mountains, and that's my thin place to be close to God, but I also have a chair in my home study. I sit, and I've written 
countless sermons there, and I sit with God in the quiet. I read, I reflect. There's like instinctively no hurry when I sit in that chair. It's a nap chair. It's not the most comfortable nap chair, but I have a spiritual gift of, of napping most anywhere, so it's pretty amazing. So wherever that is for you, a thin place is that place of invitation for you to connect with God. Now, I know you may be thinking, how in the world does this apply to me in my busy life? Sounds nice to spend all this time. Must be nice to be a pastor, spend all this time with God, take trips, be in the quiet. Uh, <laughs> and I get it. Um, but I'll tell you a story. I think we'll go a few minutes over time. I think this is worth it. So, um, and in the early days of being a pastor, uh, when I became pastor, um, Sarah's pregnant. And then when she, when we had John, uh, several weeks after paternity and maternity leave, Sarah went back to work. So I was full-time dad, full-time pastor. And just a bit about me, I'm a, on the Myers-Briggs and INTJ, which means nothing and something at the same time. Uh, but basically, they did some research and INTJs are the least likely to be stay-at-home parents. So I'm in, a, I'm in a crucible of a situation with this baby and that doesn't come with a manual, and I'm trying to like get work done. I literally, I've, I've written sermons before with a baby across, like cradled across my arms. Because I'm like, I don't have time for every, I don't know how this works. And so fast forward a couple years, we plant, and then James comes along. And for two solid years, I'm a church planter with two babies at home. Sarah's the main breadwinner because she's got that good federal insurance. You know what I'm talking about. So it made most sense for us to do that. And my life is crazy. 2014, James comes along, and, and we're here in this building, and I'm working from here, working from home, working from coffee shops, little toddler, little, you know, baby carrier, and I'm like, all pro-dad, losing my ever-loving mind, <laughs> trying to connect with Jesus. Actually, the first time I met Justin, uh, Reverend Dr. Justin Kastner, he came here, we were talking about Alpha, and uh, we're kind of planning, and we're going to try and launch Alpha, and he came, and he like... James was napping in my office, and John was toddling around, and J Justin plopped down in the foyer and scooted Hot Wheels cars back and forth with, with John when John's four years old. I'm like, this is my life. It makes no sense. We're doing pastor meetings with my kid in the middle. I don't know what's going on. So all I'm saying is, I, I, don't, I don't know your situation, but I've, I've probably like been there a little bit, trying to figure out kids and spiritual life and work, and none of this looks normal to me. But I tell you, it was glorious because this place actually became a thin place. Not, not here, not the stage, but here. Because on days where I could actually get the boys to nap, or maybe like John and I would play catching. You know why John is always bouncing balls? Because like this is what we did. We, we, this, we did catch in here in between meetings a lot. But I would walk. In between the rows, I would put worship music on, I would put the, the Kansas City prayer room on, the projection, and I would walk, sometimes with a baby, sometimes with, a, sometimes with both, and I would pray, and I would just, like, nothing, I, I can't even tell you I, what I prayed. Just help, Jesus, you know? And I, I would not trade that for anything. It's those moments that seem like struggle that form us the most, 
And that in those places of prayer where you're distracted, where pe- little people are tugging at your arms, where, where your minivan has become a monastery because you just drive around town dropping kids up, picking them up, all that stuff. It's those moments that I really do think form us the most. And, and, and as our hearts are calling out to God, he cannot resist, even if in the moment it feels crazy and like nothing's happening. I was formed so much in that place of prayer and presence with my two little boys trying to figure life out. And I wouldn't trade it for any, I'm a better pastor, I'm a better husband, I'm a better dad, because I had those years. Now, I also love my kids being in school full time. Don't, let me, don't get me wrong. I, I love those moments of like, all right, off to school, 8.30. Quiet, yes. <laughs> I wouldn't trade that for anything either. But all that to say, wherever you're at, start where you are. It's an invitation. It really is. There's no judgment. There's no condemnation. There's no, like, this person has it better. This person has it. Like, stop comparing and enter into whatever invitation God is extending you. So I'm going to have the worship team come up. Here's my... Here's the question I want you to sit with this week. Actually, I want you to stand, and you can sit throughout the week with this. Here's the question I want you to just be chewing on. What might be a thin place where God is inviting me to visit, and how can I make this a regular practice? So this is an invitation. If you have a mountaintop experience, maybe this summer make plans to get back there and, in, and sit with God in that place that he visited you all those years ago. But in the meantime, don't miss the quiet moments. Maybe it's a, it's a lawn chair on your back patio in the early morning. Maybe it's late night, praying with your spouse, just praying and, and speaking encouragement over there. Tomorrow's gonna be a better day. Lord Jesus, come. Whatever that is for you, I invite you to discern and discover that and then make plans to make that a regular practice, okay? Why don't you bow your heads with me And if you're at home, get comfortable. Feel like just be in a place where you can enter in. Let's invite God's presence in, in a greater way. So Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, we we thank you for your presence. Jesus, there's no hurry in your presence. There's peace and there's joy and there's righteousness in your presence, God. So we breathe you in and we breathe out all the anxiety, all that distraction. And I ask for all of us, God, that you would meet with us this week you would increase your presence on every one of us right now. Increase your presence in the the kids' ministry, even now, God. And come and be near us. And I pray specifically for those of us that, that aren't really sure about God's presence, God. That you would increase your presence on those who are those of us who may be doubting or struggling with this, pray that you would confirm your word this week to us, God. You would increase your love on us, God. I pray this in Jesus' name.
This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.